again, serving us and leading us so well. Take out your Bibles, please, and open them to the 34th chapter of Exodus. At this time, kids, kindergarten age, are dismissed for their um, children's church time. So youngins, y'all are dismissed now to go for children's church. Exodus chapter 34, and we're going to get to Exodus 34 in just a minute. This morning... We are starting a new series in the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus. That's a weird book for you to pick, Jeremy. The Old Testament, in case you haven't gotten the hint, Jeremy, is the Old Testament. And we are part of the New Covenant people We need the New Testament. Well, it doesn't work quite that way. All of the Scripture is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. And all of the Bible together is telling one big, grand, beautiful story. So there aren't parts of it that are irrelevant. There aren't parts of it that are unnecessary for us to look at anymore. One of our convictions here at Liberty Baptist Church is that all of the Bible is profitable and that working our way through books of the Bible actually helps us understand the Word of God, helps us understand the Son of God, helps us understand the purpose of God for us. And so this morning we are starting a new series that is going to go on for a few weeks. I don't know exactly how many weeks yet. Um, I'll put it this way, between 20 and 50. Somewhere, I've got it, I've got it narrowed down to between 20 and 50 sermons. Um, 20 is going to be if I just absolutely blitz through it. 50 will be if I take my time. Um, uh, I'm not, honestly, I'm not terribly worried about how quickly we get through this book. I, let me back up. Let me answer this question first. Jeremy, why, why would you pick the book of Exodus? What is it about the book of Exodus that, that, uh, that we might need? Let me ask you this. Let me, ask you, let, me, let me answer your question with a question. Do you ever feel like the world that you live in is ruled by someone other than King Jesus. In fact, you might even feel sometimes like it's ruled by the evil one. Do you ever feel like the world that you live in just doesn't quite feel like home? In fact, you feel a little bit like a pilgrim. You feel a little bit like a stranger. You feel like someone who's sojourning and you're going somewhere, but this where isn't the where that you are ultimately really desirous to live in. Do you ever feel like God has something for you even greater than your individual life and that, in fact, you're actually supposed to be the part of a people of God who are on their way to a beautiful and blessed place? Do you ever ask questions like that or feel that way? That's because as God's people, that, that is our story. And in the book of Exodus, we're going to see clearly that that has been the story of God's people from the very beginning, and we as God's people are continuing on in that story. In fact, I would dare say that here in a few weeks, the book of Exodus may quickly become one of your favorite books in the Bible as you begin to see the incredible good news that God has for his people here in the Old Testament and the incredible relevance and application that it has for us right here today. The book of Exodus is going to teach us a lot of different things about a lot of different people. 
but there's one primary thing about one primary person that the book of Exodus is just going to hammer into our hearts and minds over and over and over again. And we're going to see that clearly in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. And many scholars, many pastors, many theologians have kind of zeroed in on chapter 34, verses 6 and 7 as one of like the, the primary passages in the book of Exodus. It's like these are two verses that we've got to know, and we're going to see throughout the book, we're going to see this, these verses unpacked. But these are, these are kind of like the core of what God is and what God is doing in the book of Exodus. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7 say this, the Lord passed before him. Who is the him? Well, this is Moses here. Remember how Moses is asked for, to see God's glory? And God has said, no one sees my glory and lives, but I'm going to figure out a way. You hide yourself in this crack in the rock here, and I'm going to put my hand over you, and I'm going to walk past you, and I'm going to let you kind of see just the trailing little bit of my glory. You're not going to get to see my face. But it's almost like God saying, as I walk by, the tail end of my robes are what you're going to get to see. Verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Now here's God talking about himself. The Lord. The Lord. A God merciful and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And in those verses, look at what we see. We see a God of mercy and grace, a God who's ready to forgive, a God who has compassion and grace for his people, for for thousands, the idea of just thousands of people for many generations. Not only is he a God of mercy and a God of grace, notice how the verse ends, but who will no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So so it's almost as though we feel like the end of verse 7 transition and says 180 degrees opposite of what the first verse 6 and 7 say, right? Slow to anger, merciful, full of compassion, but he will in no wise pardon, clear the guilty. And in fact, he will visit... He will visit sin committed by fathers, and he'll visit sin that's committed by their children, and the sins that are committed by their children, and the sins that are committed by their children. Like, like God is a God who is both just and gracious, and we're going to see that as we march through the book of Exodus over these next months. We're going to see a God who loves to forgive his people, but for those who do not come to him for forgiveness, he does not just let them ride. He doesn't just let them roll. This book is a story about God and how God behaves. This book is primarily a book about God. And we're going to look at a bunch of different characters, and we are going to read together some of the coolest stories in the Bible. We're going to walk through the outline of it here in just a second. So the reason we're going to preach the book of Exodus is because I honestly think that this 
story. This true story is a story, yes, about the people of Israel, but it is our story. It's actually our story. It, we are a people who have been called out by God and who are on our way to a place where we'll dwell with him forever. That's the story of Exodus. That's the story. That's our story as well. And I am thrilled to study this together. Exodus is one of the first five books of the Bible. We call those five books of the Bible, collectively, we call them the Pentateuch. And it was those five books were authored by one guy who remembers who is the author of the Pentateuch. That's right, Moses, who is also one of the leading characters in the book of Exodus, is also Exodus's author, his human author. God is the one who is doing the story and telling Moses what to write. Moses is writing it down. And the main point of the book is this, and I think, do we have a, pro, do we have a presentation this morning? Do we have an outline? Do you have the, the main point of the book there for me? Okay, the main, here's, so here's the main point of the book, and I've kind of adapted this from a definition um, that I read in one of the commentaries. The main point of the book is this, to reveal, remember I said this is, this is a book about God. Let's not be confused about who the book of Exodus is about. Not primarily the children of Israel. They're just cast and characters in a book about God. God is always the hero of every book in the Bible and every story of the Bible. To reveal God's power and God's faithfulness in keeping his covenant promise to deliver his people from the bondage of sin. So he delivers them from the bondage of sin to the glory of his presence and the service of his grace. That's a big, long definition. If you want to write it all down, I'll leave it up there for you for a, a moment or two. This is the main point of this book that Moses is writing. And as we read through this book, there are going to be a number of different themes that, that crop up and show themselves over and over and over again. We're going to see God's mercy and God's compassion. We're going to see how God delivers people. We're going to see things about fire over and over again. We're going to see things about blood over and over again. We're going to see things about water over and over again. And there aren't, those things aren't accidents, right? As we read through the Bible and as we read through the book of Exodus, these themes occur because God is the author of the whole entire 66 book collection of the Bible. And these themes are meant to teach us things. Um, as you walked in this morning, there were some, uh, there are, as a a handout there with kind of the outline of the book of uh, of the book of Exodus. Did anybody not get one of those? Raise your hand high if you didn't get one, and I'll ask a couple of guys to just jump up if you would. Matt and Gary, thank you. If you would just uh, kind of take carry those around, uh, we're going to look through that together here in just a second and get a, a quick overview of the book, uh, the entire book of Exodus together. Now, here's what I've done. I very very much cheated. Many of you have in front of you a copy of the Bible. Um, in the English Standard Version. Some of you may use some other versions, totally fine. Um, the one that I typically preach from and the one that we use kind of the most is the English Standard Version. Well, what I did is I went through the English Standard Version, and you know how, you'll notice how um, before each chapter or sometimes even in the middle of a chapter, there's a, a section heading. Well, I took those section headings and I removed all of the text of the Scripture, and I just have those section headings. And what that's going to do, that lets you look at one piece of paper, and at a glance, we can read through together and see the story of Exodus all in one place on one piece of paper. What, it, what you just got, that handout, is not a Bible. It is not the Word of God. There is no Scripture on that handout. It's just an outline. It's just kind of a, a flow of the, the story of the book 
of, uh, of the book of Exodus. And so you'll see there, it starts with chapter 1, goes all the way through chapter 40, cha- 40 chapters here in the book of Exodus. And, uh, and so we see, we see and, and even this outline, you could break down, and if you're a note taker, a note marker, you, you might want to even mark out the, the reality that, that we, there's three different, three main places here in the book of Exodus. First, um, you've got um, the Israelites in Egypt, and then next you've got the Israelites going to Sinai, and then you've got the Israelites at Sinai. Um, and you can see that chapter 1 through, let's see, chapter 1 through chapter 13 is Israel in Egypt. And then chapters 14 through 19 are Israel on their way to Egypt. And then chapter 20 through 40 are Israel at, excuse me, I think I misspoke. Chapter 14 through 19 is Israel on their way to Sinai. And then chapter 20 through 40 are um, Israel at Sinai. And you might think, why are we going through all this? Because we have to know the entirety of the story as we begin to walk through uh, as we begin to walk through the book together. So with your eyes there on that piece of paper for just a moment, just notice chapters 1 through 7, God, God is preparing Moses to be a deliverer for a suffering people. So you read in chapters 1 through 7 of how Israel is suffering there in Egypt, and God brings through the, an incredibly unlikely way this little boy through in a basket in a river um, becomes the deliverer of God's people. And, as it, and then starting in chapter 7, as Moses stands before the most powerful ruler in the history of the world to that date, the Pharaoh of Egypt, God brings these plagues. Chapter 7 through, through 12 tell us about all these different plagues. And these plagues, man, I can't wait until we get to start preaching through those. These plagues are not just God doing really amazing things. Every single one of these plagues Imagine God sticking his finger in the eye of a false god. So the frogs, well, there were frog gods in Israel. And God, Yahweh God was saying, you think your frog god's strong? Watch this. You want frogs? Have some frogs. You want lice? Have some lice. The river was a god. You want your river? I'm going to turn it into blood. What God is doing in the plagues is not simply showing his strength. He's showing his strength over all of the gods of, of Egypt. So anyway, I, that was not in my notes, and I wasn't supposed to preach that yet, but I'm so excited about the book of Exodus that I can hardly stand it. The plagues of chapter 7 through 12, and then chapters 12 through 15, Israel marches out of Egypt and comes, and the, the Red Sea is blocking them, and Pharaoh and his uh, armies are coming after him, and God delivers um, um, Israel after delivering them from Egypt. He's delivering them through the Red Sea, and they're making their way through Sinai, and they they were complaining about not having food and complaining about not having water, and then finally they get to Sinai, and in verses uh, chapters nineteen through twenty four, God is giving them the law, and the covenant is being reestablished. God is saying, "You're my people, and we have a way that we're going to do life together. Here are laws for us to do that." I've made a covenant with you. I'm not going to break my covenant with you. The reason I've delivered you is because I made a covenant, a promise to your father, Abraham, hundreds of years ago. And you're on the receiving end of that promise I made hundreds of years ago. The law and the covenant are being reconfirmed in chapters 19 through 24. And then chapter 25 through 40, God's giving them these really specific instructions about how to make this tabernacle, this place where his presence would dwell with them. And quick little hint, a little trailer or a um, spoiler alert. 
when God gives all of those instructions about the tabernacle and what it's supposed to look like and how it's supposed to be decorated and the images of pomegranates and all of this sort of thing, what God is doing is he's making a place that looks like, that would remind them of the Garden of Eden. And he's, he's clearly communicating to the Israelites, remember how I dwelt with the original man and woman in this perfect garden? Well, I want you to create a tabernacle that looks like a garden, and I'm going to come and dwell with you there just like I did originally. Another spoiler alert, just like I'm going to do in the future heavens and earth. Okay, So tap, chapters 25 through 40 are instructions regarding the tabernacle. We're going to talk a lot about that. Now, here's what I want to do. We've done, we've done one really quick, um, overview of chapters 1 through 40. I want us to watch a, a, a short video now that's it's kind of, it's not a Bible project video. Those are great as well. Here's another one, though, that gives us, it's done by the Village Church down in Dallas, and it's about six minutes or so, and it's kind of an animated um, where uh, we're going to get the entire story of the book of Exodus um, in, uh, in about six minutes, and I think you're going to find it very interesting and uh, helpful to get our hearts and minds around the entire book of Exodus. From darkness to light, this is the story we all share as the people of God. He draws us out to draw us in. From the birth of Israel to the church today, God delivers and dwells with his people. This story began several thousand years ago and it began with a promise from God to Abraham that he would make his offspring more numerous than the stars in the sky, a great nation who would one day dwell in the promised land. More than 400 years passed, and Abraham's descendants had not seen this promise fulfilled. Instead, the Israelites lived as foreigners in the land of Egypt. Fearing that the Hebrews would grow into a mighty nation and overtake them, the Pharaoh of Egypt forced them to work as slaves, but Israel continued to grow. In response, the Egyptians increased their oppression of God's people, and Pharaoh gave a terrible decree. Every son born to the Hebrews would be thrown into the river. But a Levite couple defied this order, trusting God's will for their son's life. And God did have a plan for this child. Pharaoh's daughter found the baby and took pity on him. She named him Moses because he was drawn out of the water. As Moses grew older and saw the suffering of his people, anger burned within him. When he witnessed an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, Moses killed the man and fled Egypt to hide in the desert. Years passed and Moses made a new life for himself in Midian. Then one day, the voice of the Lord called out to him from a burning bush. God told Moses that he saw the persecution of his people in Egypt, and he heard their cries. He promised to deliver the Israelites from slavery, and he commanded Moses to go before Pharaoh on their behalf. Moses was terrified, so God sent Moses' brother Aaron to go with him. The brothers went before Pharaoh, performing signs and wonders but Pharaoh would not listen. So God brought down plagues upon Egypt. Yet Pharaoh's heart remained hard as stone. 
To prepare for the tenth and final plague, the Hebrews marked their doors with the blood of spotless lambs. That night, the angel of death passed through the kingdom, killing the firstborn child of every Egyptian household that did not bear the mark, including Pharaoh's. Heartbroken, Pharaoh told the Israelites to go. They were finally set free, and the Spirit of God led the people out and toward the Promised Land. But Pharaoh's grief soon turned to rage. He changed his mind and then commanded the Egyptian army to pursue them. When the Israelites came to the Red Sea, Moses lifted his staff to the sky and the waters parted. The Hebrews passed through the towering waves and the Egyptians were swallowed by the sea. The Israelites found themselves in a harsh wilderness. Though they had just witnessed God's power and might in rescuing them, the people doubted their deliverer would provide and instead complained of hunger and thirst. A few days later, they found manna on the ground, sweet and good to eat. And the Lord told Moses to strike a rock with his staff, giving them water to drink. The Lord had provided yet again. As the Israelites approached Mount Sinai, Moses delivered a word from God. If they obeyed and kept God's covenant, God would make them his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And the people promised to do so. Three days later, the mountain shook as a sound like a trumpet grew louder and louder. Then the Lord came down in fire and smoke. When the people heard God's voice, they grew afraid, and they asked Moses to speak with God on their behalf. God gave Moses many laws and instructions, including the Ten Commandments. And the Hebrews promised to worship the Lord alone and to keep his laws. Moses spent 40 days and nights on the mountain with God and returned to find the people bowing down to an idol. They had forgotten their promise. Moses burned the idols and atoned for the people's sin. And though God punished the Israelites, he did not destroy them completely. After the Israelites repented of their unfaithfulness, they went to work making everything that the Lord had instructed. They sewed fine garments for Aaron and his sons and consecrated them with oil for their service as priests. They built the Ark of the Covenant to hold the tablets of the law and also built the tabernacle where God would dwell with his people, Yahweh, the one who drew them out of slavery. And though the Israelites would endure more strife and hardship, they continued on in hope toward the promised land. The story of Israel is the story of us today. We are God's people. He draws us out to draw us in. And like the Israelites, we still await the promised land in the midst of our sin and suffering. Yet God is with us. Okay, isn't that cool? So this is the story about Israel. It's our story, and it's primarily a story about that God. That was all by way of introduction. Now I'm going to preach a sermon. 
Take your Bibles and turn back to Genesis chapter 3. I have taken into consideration the fact that I have a long intro, and we do look forward to celebrating the Lord's Supper this morning, so the sermon part won't be as long as usual, I promise. This time I really do mean it, I promise. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 says this, as Jesus, as God, rather, is um, talking after Adam and Eve have sinned, and he's uh, giving uh, the instructions regarding the curse of, and the fall. Uh, in verse 15, as God is addressing the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, the serpent and the woman, and between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. We'll keep that in mind. Now we'll go back to Exodus chapter 1, and we will stay in Exodus for the rest of our time together this morning. My main point for our sermon time together this morning is this. The book of Exodus is good news for Israel and us. The book of Exodus is good news for the ancient nation of Israel and for us as well. And what I want us to do this morning is to think through what God is doing in the book of Exodus. And yes, I have three points uh, for us to think through this book together with. First of all, there is suffering under the serpent. There is suffering under the serpent. In Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through 14, it says this, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And by the way, this is this introductory sermon, we're going to look at three different sections in the book of Exodus. Next week, we'll, we'll start working our way through, starting in chapter 1. So some of this we'll cover again next week, but in much more detail. There arose a new king, a pharaoh, a new pharaoh over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come. Let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. What is, what is Pharaoh trying to keep them from doing? Escaping from the land. What happens in the book of Exodus? Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So here are the people of God in the land of Egypt. They've been there for hundreds of years now. The Pharaoh does not know Joseph. Joseph is a long forgotten memory in the past. And they are under severe oppression by the Egyptians. Remember in Genesis chapter 3, we just read about how the seed of the serpent will be um, in conflict with the seed of the woman. Well, it's interesting that in the book of Exodus, it is clear that Pharaoh himself is the one who represents the serpent. 
He represents the seed of the serpent. He represents all that is evil in the world. He, in fact, he represents Satan. He isn't Satan, but he represents him, and he represents him clearly. They were in bondage to the seed of the serpent. In fact, and this isn't stated directly in this passage, but it, it is a historically known fact, that, that, um, that Pharaoh and the crown or the hood that he wore had an image of what animal on the top of it? A serpent. That's exactly right. I mean, the, the, the seed of the serpent, I mean, like he absolutely represents, there's no question in the minds of the Israelites, and there should be no question in the minds of those of us who are reading the book of Exodus now, that Pharaoh is meant to represent the evil one. In this book, Pharaoh does a good job of representing the evil one. And God's people were being, were being crushed under his rule. And they were incapable of delivering themselves. Brothers and sisters, in this world that we live in, this world that God has said, for now Satan is the prince and the power of the air. He is on a leash, but he is given some measure of ability and, and, and authority here in this world right now. And we do feel the effects of living in a fallen world and living in a world where the serpent, the, the seed of the serpent, um, uh, bites at the heels of God's people. We live in a world where we, as God's people, do suffer. There's hardship, there's difficulty, there's suffering because of being a Christian or just because we live in a fallen world. And just like the nation of Israel, there are times where we feel like we are in bondage and suffering and there's no way for us to deliver ourselves. And when it comes to our own sin, that is absolutely true. There is no way for us to deliver ourselves. We talked about that last week from Ephesians chapter 2. It's not by our works that we can be delivered, that we deliver ourselves. And so God's people here are suffering under the serpent, and we know what it's like to suffer in this world. But this isn't the end of the story uh, in the book of Exodus by, by any means. In the book of Exodus, there comes this very unlikely one who, who um, becomes the savior of the people of Israel. He becomes the redeemer. He becomes the one who leads them out. And we know, this is leading us to point number two, there is, there is redemption in the Savior. And in the book of Exodus, we see this in the person of Moses. Now, Moses is not Jesus, but Moses is a type of Jesus. Moses represents Jesus. And Moses comes from just the most incredibly unlikely of situations. His mom has been commanded by Pharaoh to throw her son into the Nile River. So what does she do? She, well, yes, she puts him in the Nile River. She just puts him in a little ark. And we're going to talk about that. It's actually, it's literally the word ark, the same word that Noah built to rescue God's people during the flood is this same word used here that rescues Moses for the deliverance of God's people. We'll talk about that more next week. This unlikely candidate comes along, this guy named Moses. He grows up in Pharaoh's palace. He kills one of Pharaoh's Egyptians. He runs for his life from his probably grandfather. And for 40 years, he lives in Midian. He makes a life for himself there. And then while he's there in Midian, in Exodus chapter 3, if you want to flip over a little bit, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 13, well, let's see here, back in verse, well, chapter 3, verse 1. 
Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And here Moses has this interaction, this conversation with God, and God tells him, you're standing on holy ground, and I'm going to send you to deliver my people. Look in verse 13. We're going to cover all of this again in future sermons. Verse 13 says, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? So, so, so Moses is talking with God, and Moses knows the children of Israel well enough to know this. If I go to your people and tell them that you're going to deliver them, your people are so far from you, they don't even know who you are. How am I supposed to tell them who you are? They don't know your name. See, I think sometimes we might look at Israel and think they were a really noble and righteous, good group of people, but they were just suffering, and so God came and delivered them. But I think the reality is here's a group of God's people who had forgotten who their God was. And God, because he is merciful and because he is compassionate and because he is eager to rescue his people, he goes to, uh, to Moses and he says, I'm telling you who I am, and now, now you're going to go and tell my people who I am. And in fact, tell them I am is the one that is going to deliver them. And this is going to become a huge theme here, not just in the book of Exodus, but throughout the entirety of Scripture's Moses goes back to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, who's the name of this God? And Moses says, it is, it, I'm not giving you his name. He wants me to identify him as I am. That, you're, you're important if you have a good name, King Henry III. You supersede everyone when your name isn't even necessary. I am. Tell him I am. That's all he needs to know. Tell my people that their God is the I am. And he is going to be the one, I'm going to be the one to deliver them. And brothers and sisters, let's not forget that it's that same I am who is our deliverer. In fact, in the New Testament, Jesus is persecuted because he himself says in John chapter 8, verse 24, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. You understand what Jesus is doing there? This, is, this isn't like, oh, coincidentally, he's, called, he's referring to himself as I am. Jesus is saying the God who delivered the people of Israel in the exodus from Egypt, he identifies himself as I am. I am identifying myself as I am. In John chapter 5, or John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. That's right. He doesn't say before Abraham was, I was. Jesus says, I am. I am the promised deliverer. There's redemption in a Savior, and brothers and sisters, God uses Moses to deliver his people in a symbolic way, and God uses Jesus to deliver us from our sins. And just as the people of Israel would have been looking forward to the perfect Savior someday, now we look backward to that perfect Savior 
Jesus Christ. And just like the people of Israel were redeemed, you know, the word redeemed means to be purchased from your slavery. If a slave was redeemed, their freedom was purchased by someone else. Brothers and sisters, we too have been redeemed. We've been paid for. We've been bought out of our slavery by the price of the blood of God's Son. Israel was saved by a Savior. We are saved by a Savior. And you know this because we preach it every week. To turn from your sins and to put faith in Jesus Christ is to put your faith and trust in that Savior who delivers you from the bondage of Satan, Ephesians chapter 2. So we see as we work our way through the book of Exodus first that there is suffering under the serpent, but there is redemption in the Savior. And then, yeah, as we continue to read through the book of Exodus, we'll see that they're delivered, right? They, 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 they exit, they exodus out of Egypt. And they make their way to the mountain called Sinai, Mount Sinai. This brings us to point number three. We are meant to dwell in the presence of God. In the original creation, God put Adam and Eve in the garden. They were God's people in God's place, experiencing God's presence. That was the way God intended for things to be, and Adam and Eve sinned, and fellowship with God was broken, and the curse and the fall have affected life since then. But it's always been God's desire for God's people to be in God's place, in God's presence. And in Exodus chapter 20 and following, we see this recommitment of of the covenant on God's part to His people, the reestablishing of the law, and the building of this building called the tabernacle. And what God is doing, he's saying this, you're my people, and I'm bringing you to my place, and my presence is going to dwell with you. Look, flip over now into Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20, the law is given. We we know the Ten Commandments. We're going to take time to work through those later in this series. But in Exodus chapter 20 is where we find the first giving of the Ten Commandments. And when you think about the Ten Commandments, how do you think, when you think about the Ten Commandments, how do the Ten Commandments start? Most of us, right, start the Ten Commandments in verse 3 of Exodus chapter 20. You shall have no other gods before me. And that is the first command given in the list of the Ten Commandments. That's command number one. But brothers and sisters, that is not where the Ten Commandments start. You're like, you're being tricky. What are you talking about? Look in verse 2. The Ten Commandments start in verse 2. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You see, These commands are given to a specific group of people that God has begun this work in. They aren't laws given in order for them to earn favor or to earn deliverance or to hopefully be delivered. God is saying, I have rescued you. I have saved you. You are my people. There are other people out there who are not my people, but you're my people, and in this relationship, in this special covenant that I've established with you, I have a way that we're going to live together and operate with each other. And the Ten Commandments are just the first of chapters worth 
of laws and regulations and ways that the people of God are supposed to live in that relationship with Him. So these aren't isolated commands given to make life difficult for the people of Israel. God, in verse 2, is making it clear, look, I've delivered you. You're my people. I'm your Lord. I'm, I'm the Lord your God. I brought you. I've exodus exodused you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You're my people. Now here's how we're going to do life together. Do you understand how, how different viewing the law of God is when you understand that you've been redeemed by him first. And now, as one of his children, we get to live in a unique relationship with him instead of, man, i got to keep these laws or I'm, I'm never going to make it into the family. No, it's the other way around. You've made it into the family. You get to live in special community and covenant with God. We're meant to dwell in the presence of God. And then as I, I, I spoiler alerted you earlier this morning, regarding the tabernacle, and we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the tabernacle, because you might start in like verse, uh, where do we start talking about the tabernacle? Chapter 25. Yeah, chapter 25 is where we really start to get into the this many cubits by this many cubits and this many loops with this many rings and this many cherubim and this many, right? You know, a lot of people's annual Bible reading plans die. And the last half of the book of Exodus, and I guess I understand that. I, I must confess that mine have died uh, many times in the last half, half of the book of Exodus. And I think in part it's because we don't understand exactly what God's communicating to his people. I actually don't think we today have to remember how many cubits long by how many cubits wide, right? Like if, if I come, if I, we're having lunch together and I say, no, as part of your Christian discipleship, brother, are you walking with the Lord? And how many cubits long was the tabernacle? Because if you don't know that, then we need to really up the discipleship game here, right? Because if you asked me that, I would be like, I don't know. I don't remember. I'd have to look in Exodus. That's, that's not the point. The, the big point in this part of the book of Exodus is this. God amazingly chooses to come and dwell with his people. His people were rascals, right? They have all, I mean, God delivers them, and this is, this is part of what we're, the, if you're here on, if you were here this last Sunday night, we were unpacking Exodus chapter 17, which I'm thankful for because that's going to give me, like there's going to be a couple of sermons I won't even have to prepare. It'll be done for me by the time we get there. Um, God delivers them. And what do the people of Israel start doing right away? Whining and complaining and saying, man, we had better spices back in Egypt, right? I don't like camping in the desert. This isn't fun. Yeah, we got whipped and we had to throw our babies in the river, but at least we had onions and garlic powder or whatever, you know, their spices were, right? Fo crazy talk, foolish stuff that Brothers and sisters, we look at the people of Israel and we go, man, they're crazy. But think about you. Don't even think about the people on your road. Just think about you. Think about how many times God has showed his faithfulness to you. And later that day, later that week, you are just disobeying him. Oh, and yet God chooses to come to his people, reestablish this covenant, and then give them literally a physical sign that he's dwelling with them the pillar of cloud during the day, the pillar of fire at night that make it clear to them, he is with us. Isn't that one of the things that you long for more than anything on a daily basis? God, are you with me? 
I, I don't feel like this is real. I don't feel like you're with me. I feel like I go to church on Sunday and I kind of get fired up and then I'm just like trying to hang on all week. Are you really with me? Is this whole thing even real? Well, just like God desired in the Garden of Eden, See, there's not a bunch of different ways that God operates. There's one big story that we're working our way through, not just in Exodus, but Genesis to Revelation. In the beginning, God made his people, made uh, Adam and Eve, and he put them in the garden, and he dwelled with them, and he walked in fellowship with them, and they broke that. They broke that relationship. And now here, God is reestablishing something from the origin of creation. He's reestablishing through a covenant. He's reestablishing relationship with Israel. And he's saying, and I want to dwell with you like I dwelled with Adam and Eve in the beginning. And so build this tabernacle. And so God dwells with his people in that way. And once God is, once the people of Israel are established in the promised land, he build, they build not just a tabernacle, but they actually build this beautiful, ornate temple. And the temple is where the presence of God dwells. And so there, God's people have this reminder that God is dwelling with us. He's dwelling with us, his people. And now in the New Testament, brothers and sisters, how does God make it clear? How does God dwell with his people today? By his spirit. And he dwells with us individually through his spirit, and he dwells with us collectively by his spirit. It'd be cool if there was a pillar of, uh, of cloud above us, you know, above the church and above, above us. But do you remember? This isn't in my notes, so let me think before I talk. Here in the Old Testament, as, uh, in, the, in the story of Exodus, as God's people are making their way through the, the, um, th- through the uh, desert, at night there, there was a pillar of fire that dwelt above the, uh, the tabernacle demonstrating that that's where God's presence dwelled. You remember in the New Testament when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost? What happened to those believers in that room? What floated above their heads? Tongues of fire. I don't think, I mean, I don't think, that's not coincidence. God is communicating the God that was with the people of Israel through the Exodus wanderings is now with his people. Proof? That pillar of fire is now with each one of you. I want, and so God is a God who wants to dwell with his people. And when we read in Revelation about that final heaven and earth that we occupy, that we live in, not some mystic, magic, um, floaty clouds and wings and gold, but a real heaven and earth, a recreated heaven and earth, where God's people will dwell in God's place, in God's presence, the, 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 um, the presence of God then dwells with God's people. So we we are as God's people, we are we are created, we are intended to dwell in the presence of God. We're meant to dwell in the presence of God. And so just right here, and a quick flyover of the book of Exodus, we see we see suffering under the serpent, deliverance by the savior in order to dwell with that God forever. It's the story of the gospel in the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus was not only good news for the nation of Israel, it is good news for us today. And so we began by saying that the book of Exodus is your story. And it is. We all came into this earth as people who live under the rule of the enemy, and we deserved to. But God hears the suffering of his people. And his desire to redeem us, to buy us out of our slavery. 
And so he sent not Moses, but Jesus, another unlikely person, right? Born in a manger from Nazareth. Another unlikely Savior shows up, the one true Savior, a true, many, many scholars would call Jesus a true and better Moses. He's a true and better David. He's a true and better king. He's a true and better prophet. Jesus is the true and better Moses. That Savior makes a way out for us. And God wants us to be his people. He's preparing a place for us and is preparing us for that place. So this book is part of the big story of the Bible, revealing to us that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And he is keeping his steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So have you turned? Have you turned from your way? Are you trusting in the Savior, brothers and sisters? As we work our way through the book of Exodus, I think you're going to be surprised at how many beautiful gospel themes there are in the book of Exodus. I think it will quickly become one of our favorite books of the Bible together as a congregation. I think it's going to teach us how to live together with the presence of God in the world that is still under the influence of the evil one, of the serpent. I'd ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes now. We're going to take a moment here to pray and to kind of transition toward um, our uh, time of uh, celebrating the Lord's Supper together and uh, uh, taking communion together. I'll ask Paula to come to the piano and play here in just a moment. There might be someone here who you think, you know, um, Jesus isn't my Savior. I'm not one of God's people, and I'm not dwelling with God, and I'm not headed toward dwelling with God. If you've never called upon the name of the Lord to save you, then you can do that just even right there in your chair, um, even as we sit here together. For many, though, you do know Jesus Christ as your Savior, and this reminder of how good the gospel is is just a wonderfully good, encouraging uh, thing for you to remember. And it's good and encouraging for you to remember that God is a God who desires to dwell with his people. I want to give you a moment, even as we begin to prepare for the Lord's Supper, one of the purposes of the Lord's Supper is for us to actually stop and think and give consideration to our own lives. In fact, in the New Testament, we're told not to take of the Lord's Supper unworthily. That means if there's sin in our hearts that we're holding on to and unrepentant of and we don't want to ask God's forgiveness of, then, then what God would encourage you to do is to not participate until you have gotten that right with God. If you're here this morning and, and you are walking with the Lord and you're in obedient fellowship with a local church, then I encourage you, you're welcome to participate in the Lord's Supper together. If not, then I would encourage you just to wait and get things right with the Lord before you partake of that. But as Paula plays, I'm going to give you just a moment to pray and to talk with the Lord about anything that you might need to visit with Him about um, after the sermon and the things that I've just discussed. So Paula, you play, and we'll have just a moment where everyone can pray and do business with the Lord on their own.
as Paula continues to play, uh, I realize some of you may not have uh, taken the, uh, the elements for the Lord's Supper. So starting over here on my right, your left, if there's anyone in that section who's not yet gotten the, your cup for communion, if you'd like to go get that now, you can hop up and go do that. I realize some of you got one on the way in. And then this left center section, my, my right, your left, this left center section, if you need to go and get a, a cup for communion, I invite you to do that at this time. Then the right center section, if you haven't received your cup yet and you'd like to go and do that, you can do that now. And then the far left section, I invite you to come. While you're doing that, and Paula, you can keep playing because I like that song. <laughs> um, I love what this represents. Right, so th these elements are given to us by God in part to put on display and to picture what we're going to read about in the book of Exodus. Right? In the book of Exodus, you see um, the pass, the, that first Passover experience where the people of Israel are called upon to paint their doorposts with blood so that when, when the death angel sees the blood, they will pass over. That sacrifice has been made and there's trust in God. The sacrifice has been made and there's trust in God. And so that points us ahead toward Jesus. And Jesus himself, in, first, uh, in, in the Gospels, he, he gives thanks for this blood or this body, or excuse me, this bread and this wine. And he breaks it and he says, this body is for you. Do it in remembrance. And this cup is, is for you. Do these things in remembrance and remembrance of me, but in remembrance of what I'm getting ready to do. So what that story in Exodus points toward, there's blood that's shed and death will pass over you, is pointing toward Jesus and his blood is shed. And for those of us who are in him, who have received the, the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the death passes over us. And now when we celebrate, when we take this little wafer and this juice and we partake of them, we remind ourselves of what Jesus Christ had done. The people of Israel looked forward to a day when, when a sacrifice would be made. And we look backward to the day that the ultimate sacrifice was made. So if you'll take a moment and prepare the wafer and the cup, and I'll remind you again from those words in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Jesus himself, he gave thanks. He broke the bread and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember the broken body of Christ together. In the same way, he took the cup, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it 
in remembrance of me. Let's drink together to remember the sacrifice of Christ. I ask that you bow your head. I'm going to ask the music team to come up. Father, wow, thank you. Thank you for this visual reminder that makes, makes us stop and think about blood and bodies and sacrifices and forgiveness. Thank you for the book of Exodus. We eagerly look forward to studying your plan of redemption through the book of Exodus. And thank you for the Lord's Supper in Corinthians that reminds us of blood sacrifices and the links to which you will go so that your people will dwell with you. Jesus, thank you for doing this work. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Now let's stand and sing a song of thanks to Christ. And then after that song, Will will come and close our service in prayer.